There are 185 law schools, for crying out loud, all over the country. They've, their kids are just as energized as Georgetown, although we get the very best, but they, they're just as energized as everybody else. Let's get everybody to work on this. Let's link arms and let's do this thing and go to these underserved communities. We can do this. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end, technology-enabled legal talent management solution, and we've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we take a look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're going to be examining law school pipeline programs, how they work, best practices, and what could be done better. Our guests today are Karen Ulrich Stacy, founder and CEO of Diversity Lab, and Andrew Kornblatt, Dean of Admissions at Georgetown University Law Center. Karen has over 30 years of leadership and management experience, as I'm sure well known to our audience, as the head of talent and diversity for top law firms. At Diversity Lab, she works with talent experts and data scientists to create innovative initiatives that cultivate diversity in the leadership ranks of top law firms and legal departments. Some of their programs include the Mansfield Certification, the On-Ramp Fellowship, and the Move the Needle Fund. Andy Kornblatt has been the Dean of Admissions at the Georgetown University Law Center since 1991 which is uh, approximately when I graduated from high school, Andy. Um, uh, I wish. As dean, he oversees the JD, LLM, and SJD programs, which receive over 13,000 applicants. In 2018, he began the Early Outreach Initiative, a program designed to encourage high school students in underserved communities to think about a career in law, which will be the subject of what we're going to talk about today. Karen, Dean Kornblatt, we are so grateful that you agreed to be available to talk to us, and we're really looking forward to this conversation. All right, and before we jump in with our two esteemed guests here, I'm going to try to set the table just a little bit for the audience and ground you, and uh, just go a little bit, uh, a, a layer deeper. So on that note, Pipeline programs are well-established effort to foster more diversity in the legal industry by reaching out to prospective future lawyers while they're still students, college students, high school students, and occasionally even middle or elementary school students. By providing early exposure to the field of law, as well as education and career support up to and through law school, pipeline programs aim to move the needle, uh, not stealing from you there, Karen, and improve diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the profession. Today, there are over 250 pipeline programs across the U.S. seeking to increase DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion, in law schools and the legal industry. However, despite these efforts, there's been little progress, or maybe better said, not as much progress as many of us would want, in terms of increased representation for many underrepresented groups. Today, uh, as John mentioned, Karen and Dean Kornblatt will help us unpack the work of these pipeline programs, as well as challenges, metrics, and best practice. With that said, uh, Dean Kornblatt, I'm gonna kick off uh, with you, if you don't mind. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar uh, or not as familiar as at least the four of us on this topic, would you begin by explaining what pipeline programs are and how they engage with law schools? Two-part question. Will this need to change after the recent Supreme Court decision regarding admissions? Dean Kornblatt? Um, Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks to everybody for having me here. Um, I I guess pipeline programs, as you can imagine, um, if you do admissions anywhere in any university, any college or law school or any other place, your world has just changed. 
as a result of that decision. I am in the process, our first year class just enrolled. So now we're ready for the next group and the next group is gonna require a whole bunch of thought and thinking and doing things differently. And we can get into that or not, but it is an earthquake in the admissions business and every other business, but it is an earthquake and we are coping with it. Uh, regarding pipeline programs, we began the early outreach initiative here on, I can tell you the exact date, it was April 25th, 2018. And I was called down to a conference in um, Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale, about prior sort of examining applicants and current law students' views about going to law school. What about, sort of they had surveyed a whole bunch of people. And I was on this panel and they surveyed and, and this, as they say in Family Feud, the survey said that most, a high percentage of law students had first begun to think about going to law school when they were in high school. And that's when it first happened. And so I'm on this panel and it's not terribly surprising, but you see the numbers and you go, whoa, okay, well, that's worth noting. And then the moderator said to me, so, so what do you, what's your reaction to this? And I said to my, at that moment, I thought, my reaction is for people who are in families and in situations where they talk about going to law school when you were in high school, that's when I first started thinking about it before I went to law school, I'm not you guys, but for me, that's when I did it. And that was because we had a conversation around the dinner table with my family and we talked about that and sort of that began the process in my head of going forward. And when I saw this up there, my first thought to this was, well, that's great, you know, if you're you know, if you live in Karen's family or John's family or whoever's family, that's terrific if you sit around the dinner table. But there are plenty of whip smart kids in high schools where this isn't being talked about around the dinner table. They don't have dinner tables. And so at that moment, I just thought to myself, this here's where the inequity begins. This is where it's sort of I could feel it starting. So then the moderator said to me, asked me, well, what are you planning on doing about this? So I articulated that. She asked me, what are you planning on doing about this? I thought to myself, without saying anything, I didn't know it was my responsibility to fix all this, but okay, so fine, I'll do the best I can. And I thought, you know what? Let's go visit some of these high schools. Let's go visit some of these schools in underserved communities, lower income areas, and let's go take a look and bring law school to them. What's it like? What are things about it? So in the fall of 2019, that began our process. And we created this program, this pipeline program, to go visit. Our original thought was pick out 10 cities in the United States, pick out four high schools in those cities, and then go visit them. I would go visit these high schools and talk about law school and the careers in law. So I made up my mind at that point that I wanted to go visit all of these high schools. And upon visiting all of these high schools, I realized that just sort of, you know, coming and going wasn't going to leave any footprints. That wasn't going to do a damn thing. They were very nice about this and kids listen, and then they were on to something else. That's what high school kids do. The last school I visited was in Los Angeles. It was a high school for mainly immigrant kids. And I remember I spoke to a group, there's probably 25 or 30 of them, terrific kids, terrific. And the principal was great. And as we walked out of the school, the principal said to me, the kids loved you, blah, blah, blah. And I hope you'll come back. And then he said what stayed in my head all these years later, a lot of people visit us once. And I thought to myself, okay, we need more touch points as you do this. So if it's one thing I've learned, Karen, I'm sure you've learned this too, sort of parachuting in and parachuting out ain't going to do it. It's not going to leave any impact. You got to keep in touch to have any sort of impact on this. So we then extended and we went to, I was, I was phase one, students coming to visit them as phase two, talking to alumni along with the students that was part of phase two. Phase three, before COVID, we were gonna bring them all to Washington DC and have them have, feel the legal community here. And then phase four was mentoring. COVID got in the way and so we couldn't bring anybody anywhere for goodness sakes. But we all did it by Zoom and like with so much else with Zoom, I hated not being in the schools. We're gonna start visiting again this fall. I hated not being there, but the geographic outreach that Zoom can give you with this is breathtaking. I've learned that in the law school admissions world and my Dean Kornblatt hat, I interview kids. And so I used to go to sort of major cities interview kids. Now I can go all over the world and not leave my office. You all are experiencing this at law schools and Karen, where you are too, I'm sure. 
the outreach, the in-person so much better, but man, that outreach is fabulous. So what drove us here for this is the idea, and I'm sort of, I guess, uniquely situated to see the applicants coming in because then when we crank them out of Georgetown Law School, then Karen can meet with them and we could do all that and, and you guys can hire them or whatever is going on, but it begins with the input. It begins with who I'm seeing as applicants. And the basic rule of thumb I've used here is if I'm seeing these people as applicants already, I'm good, that's fine. It's all these whip smart kids who would be great lawyers and who we need in this profession to sort of diversify it that they're just not applying in high enough numbers. So we can keep sort of doing the edges. And as the intro says, you guys said, you know, you change a little here, a little there. We need more than that. We need more than that. And so the way to do it, I think, is the front end. As it comes to me, then I'll send him your way. I'll send him your way. We're good. We can do that. I just need more people coming in. And that way. So that's sort of, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but that's sort of what prompted all of this is input to me. And I know that's, you can go to colleges. Most colleges are pretty good at this. It's the high schools. We're not getting them, those, that group of students. Now, in answer to your question about SCOTUS, again, subject for another podcast, perhaps, but in, in detail on admissions. But for this, I actually think we're in pretty firm ground here because where we are targeting our lower income. Race has nothing to do with this. And so those are the areas we're going to. And I can't imagine there would be any complaint about this. And and the the income socioeconomic stuff, that's what we're thinking about admissions too. Everybody who's faced with this new challenge, that's what we're thinking. Like I said, sorry, long-winded answer, but there you go. Thank you. Um, that, that's actually a perfect segue, Andy, into my next question to you, because I think what you're describing, which we talk about, is you need, if you're going to address structural problems, you need structural changes. And you're talking about making some structural changes that otherwise you're just depending on the people who eke through the eye of the needle now. But what did you see, if you looked at it, what did you see as holes in the way things were being done, because we did some research on this and there's an endless number of so-called pipeline programs. So what did you see the gaps were? And you're doing yeoman work at Georgetown, but you know we have to tackle this problem more broadly. So what more can be done or should be done beyond what you're doing? Thanks, John. On the, on the holes part, it was so eye-opening to visit all these high schools. I mean, I just, I can't, first of all, these are the heroes. You want to meet the heroes? Go do the same tour I did. These teachers and counselors and principals, my gosh, facilities not up to par, but still every day going in there just being fabulous. I just think it is, it, this feels like to talk about law schools, it almost feels like a luxury to these schools. It's like, yeah, that, that's a nice thing to talk about, but we don't have time for all of that. We're, you know, everybody's so busy doing the things they're doing. So I think the holes are just making this thing real. And one of the things we say at Early Outreach all the time, I'm sure Karen uses this expression too, you can do this. That's what our sort of motto is in this. You can do this and we're going to help you do this. But, you know, there's just so much, so many hours in the day and, and just so many challenges that these teachers and so forth have to deal with. We want to help do this for them, with them, of course, but do this for them and supply our talent, our kids, our law school students to come visit. And the critical piece in this for all of us, I think everybody would agree on this, is for the success of this, Let's find someone on the ground, someone at that high school, a teacher, a counselor, a coach, whoever it might be, that can help sort of navigate that particular high school's structure, as you say, John, the structure. And, and you know, invite us to speak. And the, the in-person stuff, if we can, we're going to do that. There's no shortage of law students here at Georgetown that will help. They want to help this. There's no shortage of lawyers who want to help. You guys deal with this every day. You know about this. Everybody's heart's in exactly the right place. But as you mentioned, John, when you were just a little thing, and Karen had probably hadn't been born when I became dean of admissions at Georgetown Law School. But you know what? All those years later, all those two centuries ago when I started, the needle hasn't moved enough. It just hasn't moved enough. And you know, the evidence doesn't say that it has. 
This thing were easy to fix. You guys would have figured it out already. So we need to sort of find a different way, different energy to come at this. And answer to the second question, John, my hope is we're going to spend one more year on this. My goal has always been and will be we're going to nationalize this thing. Georgetown can't and doesn't. We don't. I don't have to go to every, you know, why can't the University of Miami Law School go to see Miami high schools? Why can't Stanford go to see Stanford, et cetera? That's the plan. We're going to sort of hopefully keep refining this, and then we're going to go sort of go out and go to these other law schools and say, come help us do this. There are 185 law schools for crying out loud all over the country. They've, their kids are just as energized as Georgetown, although we get the very best, but they, they're just as energized as everybody else. Let's get everybody to work on this. Let's link arms and let's do this thing and go to these underserved communities. We can do this and we're going to nationalize it. That's the plan. My hope is this spring is we're going to really focus in on this. We've got a great bunch of kids this year who want to going to help and they're going to reach out to their counterparts at other law schools. Well, as you nationalize it, I think I speak for Brian in saying we'd be happy to be part of that effort to um, share some of the burden on this and figure out how to help because I think we completely agree with you. One of the problems is that the pipeline's too small coming out of law school. We have to increase the size of the pipeline for all the socioeconomic groups that don't get access now. Um, and, you know, we see it all the time, right? Access is a matter of often economic privilege. And if you can level the playing field so that the people who are less financially privileged get the same access, I think it, I don't think it'll be shocking to you and I. It might be shocking to some elitists that they'll find out that there's a lot of people who can do the work that just never got an opportunity in the past. And this thing goes in so many different directions. Look, I know you and Brian have experienced this, Karen, you too. I've never met one lawyer here in Washington who, upon hearing what I do, doesn't want to know from me, what can we do about getting more diverse people into our firm? Because clients are banging on the table and blanging, banging on the door. Well, I'm looking around this place. What's going on here? And it's, it's a real challenge for all of us. But I think, it's, I think we've got to stop doing, just keep doing the same stuff over and over again. That's useful. But that ain't moving the needle, not nearly enough. I, and I'd welcome your help on this. Karen, I hope we can join forces too. Let's sort of work together in this. We are ready to go and ready to be helpful. Well, and it's it, it's very much needed, and, and I do concur with uh, what John was saying. And Karen, I guess to to transition to you, um, you know, our our dear friend uh, and uh, and colleague. It's uh, it's weird to be uh, interviewing you instead of being on you know some sort of panel uh, together, but. I think the audience is really going to enjoy hearing your insight and what we've gotten to know over time. And so I guess where we want to go is, given your deep experience with the range of different pipeline programs, many of which you created, uh, such, a, such as Move the Needle, the 1L Diversity Pipeline Collective, the OnRamp Fellowship, two questions. One, you know, kind of how have you seen programs like this contribute and where do we need to go? I, I guess, you know, kind of the same question. Um, tweaks to be made, especially in light of the SCOTUS decision. And again, thank you for being with us. Happy to. So I guess let me back up for a second and give you a bit of background. And so Brian, I know you and John know this, but Andy, for your benefit and others. So I spent the first 30 some odd years, I stopped saying the number because then it ages me, um, 30 some odd years as the head of talent for five very large law firms. Arnold and Porter, Cooley, uh, Wal Gottschall, McGuire Woods, and others. And over the, that period of time, I hired 3,746 lawyers. And one of the things that I saw was exactly what Andy was saying. We kept saying we wanted something different, but we kept doing the same thing and expecting a different result, right? We know what that, what that is, that's insanity. So everything we do at Diversity Lab is a pilot, it's an experiment, it uses data and science. If it works, we put it in the marketplace and try to replicate it and as Andy said, nationalize it or internationalize it so that everybody can be doing what we learn and everyone can learn from what we learn. And if it doesn't work, we keep iterating it until it does work. And in some instances, it doesn't work at all and we try something different. So everything that I'm gonna say today comes from the standpoint of experimentation and the idea that you know, some of this, we have to try new things and we're going to fail. And man, lawyers hate failing. <laughs> so this is uncomfortable. 
it's messy. It feels exciting when you start, but it feels really bad in the middle. And so that's been one of the, the hardest things, I think, is getting people used to the fact that it's going to be a rocky road to get there. And we've done two pipeline programs, or experimented, I should say, with two pipeline programs. One is looking at the entry level, right, that Andy and others are working on. But the other pipeline that people don't talk about as often is the pipeline of more experienced lawyers that leave the profession for any number of reasons, to raise children, to birth children, elder care, to get an advanced degree, to run a business, you name it. If somebody leaves our profession for a couple of years and they have a gap on their resume, it somehow creates some brick wall for them getting back in. So we created something called the on-ramp fellowship to create a pipeline program to come back into the law if you've taken an extended hiatus. By the way, we don't call it a break because raising children is not a That's break. That's right. That's a job. <laughs> but I see two problems with pipeline. And this is why we've experimented with the 1L pipeline program, which I can talk about. And we've experimented with this experienced lawyer pipeline program. It's because even though I agree, Andy, wholeheartedly, the pipeline is not big enough, right? We don't have enough people coming in. That said, having hired 3,000 and some <laughs> law students and laterals, there are a huge number of law students in our midst that we're overlooking, that we're ignoring. You know, I mean, at Arnold Porter, we came to Georgetown every year, no question. But what we didn't do is if it was a school not in one of our backyard offices or not in the top tier, we didn't go on campus. We might have done a resume drop. We might have accepted resumes ad hoc, but we certainly didn't give access to students at those schools the same access that we gave the T14 or any number of, of highly rated schools. And so one of the things that we tried to do with the 1L pipeline test that we did, which was look at, could we find a group of 20 law schools that's underserved, that has high bar passage rates, a greater you know, population of underrepresented students, that maybe the big law firms who hire the most students aren't going there to recruit those students. The other thing that we tried to do, because this is the other broken piece of the pipeline, it's not just that there's not enough people going to law school from these underserved and underrepresented communities. It's that we really screw it up. We get in our own way in the law firm environment. So at one of my law firms, I won't name names, <laughs> my hiring partner had this idea. He believed that when we were going through resumes for OCI, because you know, there's stacks of hundreds, even thousands by the time we were going to 23 different schools. His first cut of resumes was whether or not you had varsity sports on your resume because he believed partly because he played varsity sports that if you had played a varsity sport you had grit you had perseverance you had collaboration and, and collegiality and the ability to work in teams and he saw all of those things as being important to being a good lawyer he's not wrong probably well i know from doing money balls for many years he is not wrong about those skills being important for success of lawyers but what he didn't realize and what he didn't think about was the fact that women didn't have varsity sports on their resumes. And so he was automatically creating an access issue by just saying, gosh, team sports matter for these reasons. And that's what I'm going to look at as a biographical trait where I'm going to cut and you know make some decisions. So when we looked at the stack of resumes, who was left, 90% men. Right. And then take into consideration socioeconomic issues and all kinds of other things. He was actually unknowingly taking out a huge population of underrepresented students that were also in the mix. So these types of things that we do in a law firm setting and a legal department setting and in hiring, you know, often best intentions. Andy, you said it. Everybody's heart is absolutely positively in the right place. But man, that's a screwed up process that was keeping the people we do have in our pipeline from getting in. And so that's what we're trying to do is, can we make sure that everybody equally has access that's in law school right now? And then can we help the law firm leaders and legal department leaders use the techniques, the science and the data that does in fact recruit and help hire the best and most qualified students which would also then level the playing field and, and ensure that our underrepresented populations get the same access 
as our overrepresented populations. Super, super good points. And I think talking about, and I'll hand it back to John, but his comment at the top and talking about some of these structural impediments, and I think you're hitting on a, a lot of those. And, you know, a lot of times in Karen, we, we probably all know this in interviewing, right? We try to look at folks like us, right? And yes, the four of us are a great group and there should be people like us, but, you know, to your point, maybe we should have uh, the data and some of these other tools that are available to expand the horizon a little bit. Um, John? Well, yeah, before I go to the next question to Andy, I, uh, the problem with looking for people who are like you is you never change the model of the people who get in because then everybody has to look like you or, you know, be like you in some way. And it's human nature to look at what you overcame and see someone who did it and say, wow, that person has a similar background to mine. But we have to be really conscious of the bias that that reflects and the people who get excluded by it, as Karen's saying. So I completely agree with that. Uh, Andy, did you want to comment on that point? And this may not be the right moment to talk about this, but listening to Karen talking, uh, speaking, Interviewing, it seems to me, is such an important, should be such an important piece of what goes on. And I think data and the focus on data, and as Karen said, go to the top 14 schools and go to the ones that, you know, and look, that's fine at Georgetown where everybody comes here. But there are plenty of wonderful, wonderful students and future lawyers, again, leave aside the pipeline for a moment, who'd be terrific at your firm but you won't see them. But meet them first, meet them. My experience in admissions, sorry, that's the subject of another day, but my experience in admissions is the fact that I've been able to meet so many of these kids makes a huge difference in these decisions. And it's not that different to me deciding who gets into Georgetown Law School and whether Arnold and Porter hires this person or that person. It's the meeting, I know the date is so important, blah, 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 meet the person, talk to them, look them right in the eye. Who's the peacock? And who's lighting up the sky? Get the peacocks out of here and, and find more people who lighten up the sky. That's like what that. I'm looking for. And so that's, I, like I wish that. we did a little bit more of that. Yeah. And, you know, you see it when you're in a law firm, Andy, because I would ask most of the law firm people who listen to this, when was the last time we've looked at a lateral partner and cared where they went to law school or what their grades were? We don't care at that point, right? So because they've already, quote, gotten in the door somehow. So, you know, it, Karen, you have your hand up. This <laughs> no, is like class. Did you bring enough gum for the rest so, of class? So, so polite. <laughs> well, yeah, Go ahead, Karen. I, I have my hand Karen, up. we need because... to find better teachers. This is class, and you and I are the yeah. students. We need to find better teachers than these two. <laughs> Jump right in the fray. We love that. <laughs> well, we, well, we need no, to go to school somewhere you know, else, and, Karen. And Andy, I'll, I'll defend I, John. He's been teaching over at GW for a while. Now, me, you don't want teaching. But, uh, you know, John, John probably has a couple things to well, add. Yeah. <laughs> but Karen, I was the most impressive thing about it was you used a human hand to show that you were interested in being called that. Yeah. Um, this school. is a reflection. That's probably because I can't find that damn hand on the computer. And I need to use only exactly. my human hand because that's all I have the tech skills to do. Um, I, I want to add a point to Andy. So, you know, one of the things that I think there's often a divide between law school people and law firm people is, you know, Andy, you thoughtfully say meet the students. And I agree, right? Because we know that the minute humans come in contact with each other, it's different than reviewing a resume. The problem that we have is that we've set up so many roadblocks before that meeting even occurs. Yeah. And, you know, OCI is a good example of both a, a really positive way to pull a bunch of different students and a bunch of different law firms together in a, in a structured, organized way but it's also a really bad roadblock when there's lottery versus selection, you know, before you even get a chance to meet the students. And so we've built in a lot of arbitrary roadblocks before that meeting can even occur. And we're seeing ways to break those things down, right? So even doing a redacted resume, right? Taking the law school off the resume and just looking at the human and what they've done to get to law school and in law school changes the dynamic and actually gets you to the meeting so that you're not making a decision based on that person and the law school they went to. Because I'll tell you, having money bald lawyers now, sorry, Andy, I love Georgetown, recruited from Georgetown for many, many years. Their law school doesn't matter. It does not, every bit of money ball analysis we've done shows that the law school doesn't matter. Grades matter, but up until a point. What matters are other things that 
are, are underweighted in our current process. And again, I don't mean to say that Georgetown versus a different school doesn't matter because Georgetown opens the door in some instances to more uh, opportunity than other schools do. But in terms of the academic and the education that you get, you're not likely gonna stay in law or not stay in law. You're not likely gonna be a better litigator or not be a better litigator as a result of just the law school that you went to. Well, and I think this is also, um, we may be hijacking this whole thing, but I think this is also the US news impact. This is a version of US news. And that is how can we sort of, what is my median GPA and median LSAT for the entering class? Where is this firm hiring? Which law schools did they come from? It's sort of, we want to show off all of that stuff. Well, underneath this, and for my, in my case, what undergraduate school did you go to? Underneath that, you realize that there are people, accomplished, smart, achieving people who didn't go to this law school for a different reason and didn't go to this college for financial reasons or whatever else it is. So it's just humanizing this thing. But this is you know, the pressure I feel to get my median scores and all of that stuff for rankings, the pressure these law firms feel to sort of list where the, uh, you know, the law schools that new associates are coming from, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just a superficial way of looking at this when it takes much harder work to get underneath and get the, you know, the real gems in this. They didn't all go to the top law schools. Yeah, and, and I'll just chime in real quick, John. I, I know you're gonna jump in with, uh, with a question, but just for the audience, and I think, uh, underlining uh, point that Karen and, and Andy are making up. Uh, there's a woman, uh, Lauren Rivera, uh, that writes a book called Pedigree, How Elite Students Get Elite Jobs. And I think it is one of the factors, and we each have our own, you know, sort of money ball approaches, for lack of a better word. And what we try to do is put a number of different variables in this. And, you know, for the listeners who haven't heard this, Malcolm Gladwell also has a good podcast on this where He's making reference to uh, the late Justice uh, Scalia, and in response to one of the American lawyer, uh, uh, American students from American, um, asking, "How can I get to be a Supreme Court, uh, you know, clerk?" And he says, "You can't." And then somebody follows up and says, "Well, who's been your your best clerk ever?" Uh, and then he, you know, he he uh, gets sheepish and he answers uh, a person from Ohio State who's now the Chief Judge of the uh, Sixth Circuit, I think. So, I think there's a lot of merit in in our conversation here, and I hope we can couple it with that pipeline discussion. Uh, sorry, John. Yeah, and I don't think it's hijacking it at all, Andy, because these are so interrelated. You can't discuss the pipeline program without discussing these other issues. There's no, this is not a segmented issue. Yep. But just to be specific about pipeline programs, and as you look to nationalize it, what do you think the challenge has been from your experience having gone through it that others will need to uh, you know, be aware of? And, and how can we learn from what you've done to address those challenges? The challenges are because we're striking at these students at an early age. They're 17, for goodness sakes. They're not, they won't be applying to law school for four, five, six, seven years. That's the challenge is keeping this sort of what we've, what we, the seeds we plant alive all the way through. And that's going to require mentoring and staying in touch and sort of collecting the data in a way that we can stay in touch with these students all the way through. And that's the challenge. The challenge is, you know, if you start when there's juniors in college, that's a much easier thing to monitor. But we've all tried that. And that's just not working well enough. And that's that's why we're here and why we created this thing. And Karen's doing all the hard work that, and great work that she's doing. And you guys too, obviously. That's why we're here because it's not just, let's tweak this a little, that's not gonna work. So the challenge, John, is to sort of stay in touch and keep monitoring and keep our presence and not so much Georgetown's presence, but the presence of law school and when, you know, these, these kids have all these financial pressures to sort of not worry about what you're going to do in some dreamland law school thing, but, you know, you need to come home and watch your little sister because I got to go work. Both parents are working. And that's, you know, you sort of see this as I've been more, much more educated about this the more I see this. So I think it's going to require a nationalizing of this and everybody deciding, let's go do this. We can hit all the different cities, but it's got to be a commitment. It can't just be, I'll see you in January and I'll see you in May and then good luck. 
and I hope you apply. And that's that. You can't do it that way. You've got to stay in touch. And that requires people and person power and everyone kind of staying with it and then staying with it and then staying with it again. But I'll tell you how it pays off. And I'll just tell this one quick story. I was interviewing a bunch of kids and for, to go to law school. And I interviewed these kids eight at a time on Zoom. And the question I asked them is, you know, introduce yourself. And we begin by everybody giving a fun fact about themselves. So the fun fact is, you know what, I play the trombone or I climb this or whatever. And one kid's fun fact, I'm going around and he said, my fun fact is I've met you before. I said, really? Is that right? Where? And he described the visit I met to his, went to his high school when I went to his high school four years ago. And now he's applying. He's a first year student at Georgetown Law School. And that was sort of this electric moment. And the more of these you hope that you get this, this is why we do this. And he said, everyone stayed in touch. So that's the challenge, John. You've got to stay on top of this. You've got to stay with these kids and keep them sort of tethered to this dream because the pressures they have aren't necessarily the pressures the four of us have in terms of financial and all the rest of it. And that's on us. If we're going to make it work, you just got to keep at it and then keep at it again. And then when you're done with that, keep at it again. You know, my wife says that getting old is not for the faint of heart all the time. She says that as we get old. But I think it applies to this work as well. It is not for the faint of heart. This is not just to check the box, put it on your CV that you did something good. You've got to believe in it and stick with it if you're going to make a difference. I agree with Andy's challenge, right? It can't be a one-touch situation. It's got to be a multi-touch situation and a long-term commitment. The other two things I would add to what Andy said is you have to follow the structure. Every ounce of your body, you'll want to fall into the muscle memory or the things that you've done previously versus the structure that you've set up to remove the bias or disrupt the bias in the structure that you've set up. Because we've already said, right, structural problems require structural solutions, but structural solutions only work if you stay committed to the structure. And let me tell you what I mean by that, too. So. In the 1L pipeline program that we tested, it was a combination of law firms and legal departments working together. Because one of the things we saw is when law firms were left to their own devices, they didn't follow the structure. <laughs> they went back to flexing the muscles they had flexed years before, right? Or for the last couple of decades. But when we added another influential party to the mix, the legal department, AKA their client, they stayed accountable to the structure and the structure was threefold. It was review resumes in a batch, take the name of the law school and some of the other things that we know brings bias into the mix, redact that, review the resume in batches. Here's a scorecard. You don't get to just look at the resume and say yay or nay. You have a scorecard of competencies that look at what are the biographical traits that tend to lead to success. Not the ones you think lead to success, but the ones data says lead to success rate the person on those core competencies, not likability, not John, to your point, how, how much they look like you or the trajectory maybe that you had. And then three, take into consideration more than the resume, right? They write a narrative, they do a video, and then those things have a scorecard so that you can't then let bias like likability fall back into the mix. And it was so interesting because when we sort of like a clinical trial, we said, this group of lawyers is rating them like they've done in the past, which is just look at a resume and say yay or nay, we want to bring them in. This group, along with the legal department, kind of sitting in tandem with them, use the core competency, use the batch resume, use the other influential party as accountability to say why you've chosen them and, and why you want to bring them in and why you want to meet them. Not only did we get a bunch of really great qualified high performers, the population was much more diverse than this, what we've done in the past. But the thing we found is that the third year we did this, if people didn't follow the structure, they just went back into that flexing that other muscle. So you have to follow the structure. And then the second thing I would say is you have to measure the results. So many people do DEI work, talent work. They put these great programs and these great structures in place, and then they let them fly free. And there's not anything that measures progress, and there's not anything that measures outcomes. This clinical trial that we did, we had to measure outcomes because we wanted to see was one better than the other. But even if you're not doing it that way, you know, Andy, to you, 
I'd love to hear how's Georgetown measuring success? Because you're right, you're five years out or three years out or however many years out. And if you don't have that touch point that you talked about, you can't measure success. So that's just one thing I would say, or two things I would say to add to the mix. It is that long-term commitment, but follow the structure and measure the results. Otherwise, we just kind of fall back into our old habits. Measurement, both of you guys, can you share with the audience some of the metrics that you've used to measure the progress and maybe even some of the results themselves? But uh, uh, I'll throw it back to you guys. And thanks for the great segue, Karen. The trick for us has been to sort of balance patience with wanting results. Um, you know, it's the program we have here the, from high school. Again, do the, do the math on this. If you're talking to seniors in high school, it's at least four years, at least four years. And by the way, nowadays, you know, three quarters of the entering class at Georgetown Law School has taken a year off after undergrad and before law school. Back, you know, in the dark ages when I went, you guys went, people came right out. It was more the other way around. Maybe a quarter had spent some time out. Now it's the other way, financial reasons and all sorts of other reasons. So you're not just waiting four years sometimes, you're waiting five years, six years, and the population we're meeting financially needs to sort of make, you know, be able to make it affordable. So maybe they're working and so all of that. So our plan right now is to be patient with this, but Karen's quite right. We want to see results. Like I said, I saw this one student. We've got another one coming down the road too. These two students are thrilling, but we saw 3,000 kids and here are two. But the others are coming, we hope. We're going to keep looking at this thing. I, I am not going to let that um, sort of get in the way of who actually, you know, just measure it, who actually comes to Georgetown. We have to have a way to stay in touch with these kids to see how many are applying. You never know if they would have applied anyway. <clears throat> I just think if your foundation is strong, if you believe in what you're doing, and then you can see these results will trickle first, and then you hope they rush in. And so it's that balance of give me the results, but you got to be patient. And at least for what we're doing, if you're, a, if you're an undergraduate college and doing this, you can see it two years hence. Ours is four years hence, five years hence, six years hence. You got to be patient with this. We just started this thing four years ago. So we're going to be monitoring this. We think it's really, really important to be determined and never get tired. John's just exactly right. It's easy and you can just say, well, I guess that didn't work so much. Yes, it did. You just aren't, you just got to keep at it a little bit longer. Andy, stay with the metric for a second. What is it that we're looking at? Is it the pull through overall? Is it seeing? Is it tying from the schools you visited to see who applied? What What's the right metric? Right. The second one, I think, uh, if you believe that the students we are reaching now, I'm not saying this is 100% true, but if you believe that these are students we are reaching out and touching several times because we believe we otherwise wouldn't see them applying to law school that that just wouldn't be on their radar. So I wouldn't see them to turn them over to Karen, to turn them over to you guys, however we do this. If they are applying to law schools, it's a way of staying in touch. And I've got people here in the staff that are gonna work on this, staying in touch with the high schools, to have them keep in touch with them and see what happened to these kids that I met in the fall of 2020. Where are they now and what are they doing, this group? And so we're going to, that requires some work here that we're going to continue to work on. But while we're doing that, we're going to keep visiting the schools. But I think that's what you're getting at, Brian. I think that's the thing is to keep track. And we're going to have to do that. These high schools have got enough challenge, for goodness sakes. But that's going to be on us to keep track of this and to see as we go forward how many, again, not necessarily to Georgetown or if I'm saying yes, but who's, are they now applying when they weren't before? And once we nationalize this, as I talked to John about, once we nationalize, then away we go. Until then, it's right. just a small group because it's just us. Karen? So, you know, I talked a little bit about how we measure the 1L pipeline, but, but I'll talk a little bit about how we measure the on-ramp program because I think that provides maybe a structure for both the entry level and the more experienced pipeline. So, you know, the on-ramp fellowship, again, it's a one-year fellowship. It's kind of like an internship for 40 plus year olds. <laughs> it's one year and they get a chance to come back and broaden their skills and broaden their contacts because in some instances they've been out for 10 years or even 20 years. And broadening your contacts is as important as broadening your skills 
taking into consideration that technology has changed since some of these folks were, were in the legal profession, and that matters for discovery and some of these other things that we're working on you know, in the legal profession. But I, we look at five metrics when we think about the on-ramp fellowship. So we may post 100 different jobs, or typically lateral-like roles, but we may post 100 different jobs. And when we typically look at who and how many people do we attract to those jobs and how diverse are they? Because we've seen that one of the measurements is not just the outcome, right? So on Ramp Fellowship, we brought back 118 women, one third of whom are attorneys of color. But then the question becomes, did we attract a diverse set of individuals who are interested in these jobs? And so we work with the employers and we test inclusive job postings, right? We do a job posting that just says somebody with three to five security, you know, years of ex securities experience that has this law school and these grades and all of this. And then we test up against that an inclusive job posting that's as much about, it's kind of an equalizing the buyer seller scenario. It's much about what the candidate gets from this role as it is what the organization gets from the candidate. So we measure first, what's the attraction rate? Who's attracted to this and how diverse is the body of people? The second thing we measure is when we score the folks who are applying, because we use a writing assessment, we use a personality assessment, we use a skills assessment, we use a structured behavioral assessment. Is there any adverse impact on our scorecard? How many people are getting through our scorecard in our screening process and how diverse is that population? The third thing we measure is who gets invited by the law firm or the legal department to interview. And we change up what we give the law firm and the legal department to see if one has a better effect than another. And one of the things we learned, by the way, was that when we put the resume first, law firms choose a less diverse group of individuals. When we put the testing and the data and the narrative first and the resume last, the law school doesn't scream at them. Bias doesn't seep in in the same way <laughs> that it had you know, or could in the past. So we measure who gets in, who gets screened, or who gets that meeting, Andy, that you talked about, which is so incredibly important. And then we measure who gets hired and how diverse is that group? And that's where we get to that 115 or so, you know, women that have returned to the workforce. And then we have a fifth measurement, and this goes to the longevity piece and the structural piece, Andy, that you also talked about, who stays in law and who advances into upper echelons, right? Who's made it into the partnership? Who's now GC at their company? And we stick with them to see, did what we hope to have happened at the beginning, which the end result was come in, come back into law and then advance. Did that end result happen two years, four years and seven years later? And we stick with all of them so that we know what's happening and how it's happened. But each of those five measurements can have a disparate impact or, or an adverse impact if you're not looking at each of those measurements and you're just looking at the first measurement and the last measurement. It's the sausage making in the middle that's as important as that baseline and that you know end result, if you will, measurement. So I was going to end on this, which is uh, uh, what I was going to for before, Karen, which is you, you, you talked about a clinical trial, right? You do clinical trials. Th to Andy's point about how do we keep track of success, not so much what are the metrics, but what how do we measure success? I wonder whether, in effect, we have to adopt the clinical trial approach, because this is what you do in medicine, right? You, you, you have five-year markers, 10-year markers, 15-year markers, and you're checking with people to see whether certain things work or don't work. So I just wonder, Andy and Karen, your comments on you know, whether as you're going into the high schools, whether you can get you know, the young people you're talking to, to participate in effect, to agree voluntarily to the extent they want to in this trial, which would which would have a monitoring system. So they would be checking. It wouldn't be hit or miss whether you happen to see them again. We would be tracking their progress and they would be reporting in. And, and they could even answer your question, would they have gone to law school anyway? Because they would say, I was probably going to go, but or they could say no, and it was never going to go. This made the difference. It, it's such so interesting you say that as I listen to Karen and and as we have had this conversation. It's exactly where my brain is going here, which is let's let's sort of organize this in a way so that we ask permission for these seventeen-year-old kids to stay in touch with them, and once they opt in, and their parents may have to sign off or whatever we do with privacy stuff, and we just kind of keep track. 
And would they be willing to be able to keep track? I think that's, it's, look, I, it takes a long time for, for our program, but it sends a powerful message if we can sort of really do this in a data way that say there are these thousand kids, X number went to college, X number went to, continued on to law school. They answered the questions. I, I love the analogy of the clinical trials, John. I think that's spot on. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we're planning on doing now. We're sort of ready to reboot for the fall. And that's exactly where my brain was going, where you want to just sort of get a chance to kind of keep track of this. It's hard to us. It's a little bit easier for Karen because there are just, it's more, it, the time frame is so much shorter. And for us, it's hard, but hard is not a reason not to do something. And so we'll, we're just going to have to sort of figure out the best way to do it in, in kind of a data way so that we keep track. I love that analogy, John. Thanks. That's very useful. And I think, you know, we can ask them and let's see what the results provide. Can I just add one quick thing? Sorry. Karen was talking about, and, and, I, and maybe this is subject for another podcast you guys are going to do with or without us, which is how life has changed, how vocabulary has changed after the Supreme Court. And sort of what, how we have to be, I'm sort of listening to Karen talk about diverse and, you know, everyone wants to talk to me about what's admissions going to be like and choosing our words so carefully now and sort of what are we doing? It, it is, it's a sea change. And again, subject for another day, but I sort of listened, that's what popped into my, and I'm sure you guys are sort of have plans on all this, but you know, man, trust me, as someone who's right on the front lines of this, right smack in the middle of this. It is, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and there's no question all of us have got to be aware of it. Thank you guys both. I think that was uh, a, a lot for the audience. And I think we got a couple of nuggets. John and I will talk offline about uh, a follow-up podcast and, and we'd love to have you guys uh, both back for that if you're so willing. So this is uh, more the, before we let you go, more of the whimsical part of the program. Uh, and so John and I will do a, a, a debrief or a, a little chat on what we've heard, and then he'll close us uh, officially uh, on the outro. But uh, Karen, since I, I know that you have many uh, pet peeves, would you like to share with the audience uh, your, your highest ranking one? <laughs> I want Andy to start. <laughs> You don't have enough time for me to list all my pet peeves, so I think I'll just go with Yankee fans, people who root for the New York Yankees. John accepted, or maybe not, I don't know, as I get to know him, we'll figure that out. But um, I, I just, I've got lots of pet peeves right now. I think for me, it's this, uh, professionally anyway, it's this obsession with statistics an obsession with measuring and exception with show us what you got don't tell us show us and show us means give us the numbers and again in my world interviewing all these kids i don't give a you 